Thank you very much for asking me here today. Uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, I ran out of ideas for a new book on the Founding Fathers. Uh, people had just written on Washington, Adams, Madison, and uh, I had written on Lafayette, Patrick Henry, John Hancock. And then to find an idea, I picked up John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage, and there was John Quincy Adams in chapter one. Well, I thought his name begins with A, obviously he's in chapter <laughs> one. But no, that was not why he was in chapter one. John F. Kennedy had put him in chapter one as the, the most courageous congressman in the history of the United States. He was ahead. Webster was in chapter four. Thomas Hart Benton with a B was chapter five. Uh, so Adams was number one because of his courage. Now, many Americans uh, don't know that John Quincy Adams was a, a senator and a congressman, and too many don't even know he was president. Uh, but he was not only sixth president, a courageous senator, an eight-term, 16 years as a congressman. He was American minister to six countries, six different countries in Europe. He was probably... America's greatest Secretary of State. Uh, he did so many things. His life spanned 80 years, 80 formative years of American history, uh, from the eve of the American Revolution to the eve of the Civil War. He witnessed the, the Battle of Bunker Hill with his mother. He served under George Washington, and he served with Abraham Lincoln in the House of Representatives. In the course of his life, he knew Franklin, Jefferson, Madison. Of course, his father was John Adams. Uh, he knew the Duke of Wellington, the Tsar, uh, Tsar Alexander of Russia, uh, Frederick the Great of Prussia, uh, Charles Dickens, Jeremy Bentham. He knew all of the leading figures in world history at the time and worked with many of them. Um, he was one of the most brilliant lawyers in American history, uh, pleading precedent-setting cases before the Supreme Court, including the famous case in which he won freedom for the 36 African prisoners. Uh, on board the ship Amistad. Some of you may have seen the film uh, Amistad. Well, that was John Quincy Adams pleading before the Supreme Court. And he won the case with a brilliant argument that changed the legal status of the, the people involved in the slave trade. He pleaded that these African men and women had been kidnapped, that they were not slaves. They had been kidnapped and they killed the captain and mate of uh, the ship Amistad in self-defense, rising up against their kidnappers. Well, the Supreme Court agreed and freed them. But in doing so, and made the President of the United States pay for the voyage back, uh, but in freeing them and declaring them freemen, that they had been freemen, it changed, it made the, the slave trade illegal. No longer were these slaves on board those ships. They were kidnapped freemen. And that essentially ended the slave trade, the, the, the legal slave trade. 
As I say, he served under, uh, as an ambassador under President Washington uh, and served uh, in six different countries uh, under Washington and under his father, and then later under James Madison. Uh, John Quincy Adams was, was the firstborn son of John Adams. Uh, John Adams himself was our first vice president and our second uh, president. Uh, he was also a great constitutional lawyer, a scholar, a great constitutional uh, scholar who wrote uh, nine of the first constitutions of the 13 states. John Adams, the father. So this boy, John, John Quincy Adams, the firstborn son, was born with genes unlike <laughs> most people. Uh, they could trace, the Quincy's could trace their ancestry back to uh, the Battle of Hastings. Uh, a, a sire de Quincy came over with William the Conqueror in the Battle of Hastings. Another de Quincy rode to Runnymede to force King John to sign the Magna Carta which uh, ensured British freemen of the right to trial uh, by a jury of their own peers and in turn uh, created that freedom for Americans. John Quincy's mother, from his birth, Abigail Adams, uh, decided he was to be President of the United States and she raised him to be President. Uh, she told him when he was seven, if you do not rise to the head of your country, it will be owing to your own laziness, slovenliness, and obstinacy. <laughs> I advise you to fix unalterable resolutions in favor of virtue, integrity, and unchangeable love for your country. So from the first, Abigail and John Adams taught him to be virtuous, to love, serve, and devote his life to his country, and that's exactly what he did. It's astounding that so few Americans know this man. Uh, he later said in, dis uh, in discussing his own feelings towards his country, he said, I saw with my own eyes the fires of Charlestown, the memory of Bunker Hill, riveted to my soul abhorrence of tyrants and oppressors who wage war against the rights of human nature and the liberties and rightful interests of my country. When he was seven, they heard powder uh, cannon blasts in the distance and uh, Abigail took him up on top of the hill behind the house and they could see across Massachusetts Bay, Boston Bay, and watch the Battle of Bunker Hill. So they saw the slaughter of Bunker Hill. Now, in preparing him for presidency, obviously he had a brilliant mind, but uh, Abigail, John was now down in the Continental Congress, Abigail saw to him that he read the newspapers, so he learned all the events of the day, all the principal characters of the day. And then uh, he also studied Latin and Greek. Uh, when he was 10, John Adams took him with him to France when John went to try to secure aid from uh, the uh, French government for, to pay for the Revolutionary War. And there he went to school with Benjamin Franklin's grandson at a private school, learned French. And by the time he was 14, uh, he could speak six different languages, 
Uh, he had studied Latin, Greek, classical Latin and Greek, and studied history of England, uh, the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, was studying Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Uh, he was a brilliant, brilliant young boy. And so much so that when uh, uh, Francis Dana came to Paris on his way to St. Petersburg to become the emissary, American emissary, he asked John Adams if he could take young John Quincy with him because Francis Dana couldn't speak French. John Quincy was fluent in French and a consummate diplomat by then. So at 16, he goes to St. Petersburg as secretary of the legation. And uh, at 16, he was in wintertime with nothing to do there. He kept studying. Uh, he, he studied the eight volumes of Hume's uh, History of England. He studied uh, more languages, learned Spanish and Italian on his own, simply because of his insatiable curiosity. Uh, he was... Oh, he studied Latin there on his own. He read Cicero's orations, Virgil, Tacitus, Horace, Ovid, uh, the French poets. And I say, say by now, he was fluent in French, German, Dutch, Russian, Italian, and Spanish. His intellectual curiosity was insatiable. He obviously had the mind of a genius. And he was only 16. He hadn't really started life yet. At, 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 at 16, I was still reading Uncle Wiggly. <laughs> but uh, but I, I went to Yale and not Harvard. <laughs> That's the difference. Uh, no man in history was ever better educated or better prepared for the presidency than John Quincy Adams. Uh, as a foreign diplomat, he met and was, he was only one of four American diplomats overseas, but the only one with the language skills that he could converse with every diplomat he met. And thus he became uh, the head of our foreign intelligence service because only he knew what everybody was saying at diplomatic soirees, and he fed this back to the State Department and to the presidency, which is why uh, James Madison then sent him as chief emissary to negotiate a peace in the War of 1812, and why uh, Madison's Secretary of State, uh, James Monroe, when he became president, even though uh, uh, Adams was from a different political party, he named Adams Secretary of State. And Secretary, as Secretary of State, he was instrumental in engineering the acquisition of Florida, annexation of Florida from Spain, and stretching U.S. boundaries to the Pacific, and then wrote the core uh, elements of the Monroe Doctrine, warning Europeans not to try to establish any new colonies in the Americas. In the Senate, he, although he was elected as a Federalist, he refused to vote on, with the Federalists. He voted according to his conscience and for the interests of the country. So when Jefferson from the opposite party proposed the uh, Louisiana Purchase, John Quincy Adams was the only Federalist to vote for it and cast the deciding vote. 
for the Louisiana Purchase. But then right almost a week later, turned against Jefferson when Jefferson tried to have uh, Justice, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase impeached by the Senate uh, because Chase and, and uh, Jefferson were at odds with each other politically. And John Quincy Adams defended Samuel Chase and won the case in one of the most dramatic trials in the history of the Senate uh, in which uh, Jefferson tried to impeach a justice because they had different political views. And John Quincy Adams fought uh, uh, that indictment and won the case saying that political dissent is not a high crime or a misdemeanor and not subject to impeachment. And the Senate agreed uh, and acquitted Chase. As president, he came in on a minority vote. Uh, the people did not vote for him. They really voted for Andrew, Jack for, uh, Andrew Jackson, who uh, ousted Adams in the next election. And the reason for that was John Quincy Adams refused to campaign. He said it was beneath the dignity of a presidential candidate to make uh, promises that he couldn't keep. And well, thanks to, thanks to him, no candidate would do that today. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and that's why they all tell the truth when they campaign today. Uh, so he, oh, I was he, concluding the opposite. <laughs> he refused to campaign. Uh, he actually lost the popular vote, but in the House of Representatives, the, the election then went into the House of Representatives, and uh, the Federalists outnumbered the Republicans, and they voted for him. Uh, but he lost the next election and returned to his home in Quincy, Massachusetts, despondent. But the people of Quincy said, get back to work. And they elected him uh, their uh, representative, the first president, uh, not only the first president, the first son of a president ever to be president, but also the first uh, president ever to serve in the House of Representatives after his presidency. And while he was there, in his 16 years in the House, and he served until the day he died. Uh, he voted only for what he believed in. He didn't belong to any political party. He was really the first independent in Congress. And he insisted on voting for the uh, interests of the whole nation rather than the interests of Massachusetts or any uh, special interest group. He was the first congressman to stand up and propose abolition and emancipation before Lincoln could even spell the word. And uh, of course he was shouted down time after time after time uh, to the point where the Southerners finally passed a rule that, said, that uh, made it, uh, that forbade, forbade every member of Congress from using the word slavery in their speeches. Couldn't use the word anymore. And so uh, John Quincy Adams said he wasn't reading from, uh, he would no longer use the word slavery, uh, but he read petitions. The Constitution gave citizens the right to petition Congress, so he read petitions from the North uh, asking uh, that Congress abolish slavery. Stop! Stop him! They shouted all of a sudden. And 
uh, finally, uh, uh, he, he then argued, I'm not using the word slavery. Stop! <laughs> the, the Constitution guarantees the right of petitioners to petition against slavery. <laughs> uh, finally, the, the uh, House Speaker, uh, 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 James K. Polk, the future president from Tennessee, uh, ruled uh, John Quincy Adams out of order and made him stop speaking. John Quincy Adams stood up and said, am I gagged? And that gave birth to the rule, the gag rule, uh, which was passed. And he fought that year after year after year. Uh, Southerners, uh, the petitions came in from the South asking that John Quincy Adams be tried for treason. Uh, he kept fighting back and as he fought, more and more uh, petitions came in from the North. It gave, he gave birth to the abolition movement because they saw what was happening. The Southerners were now going to gag the Congress and take away our constitutional rights, not only redress of grievance, but freedom of speech. And the petitions kept coming in from the North, more and more and more. And finally, he got the gag rule overturned. Uh, and then they tried to censure him. Uh, but again, uh, people in the North kept fighting for him. He rallied all of the Northerners uh, for abolition and emancipation. Uh, the uh, uh, one Pennsylvania sent uh, in a, a letter that said, the hearts of 100,000 Pennsylvanians are with you. Uh, the, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote in, uh, and John Greenleaf Whittier wrote simply, God bless thee, John Quincy Adams. And the House was so embarrassed that they tabled the censure motion. During his years in Congress, uh, I was telling Mr. Cook before, he also became a champion of scientific advances. Uh, and he was responsible for preserving a large bequest from an Englishman, James Smithson, to found a scientific institution. Well, every college wanted a piece of that money. So the congressmen from, that congr from those, uh, the areas of those colleges kept wanting a chunk of it. And he fought to keep the bequest intact and became, was responsible for the founding of the Smithsonian Institution. His interest in science began when he was a boy with his father in Paris where he witnessed the first balloon flights in history. Paris was the center of scientific advances in the, in the Western world at that time, and was always interested in the heavens and the skies. And he proposed building a series of astronomical observatories in the United States. He was the father of space exploration. He asked Congress, they rejected it, of course, he asked them to build, this was while he was president, to build what he called lighthouses in the sky to connect mankind with the heavens. Well, after he was a member of Congress, uh, he still couldn't get Congress to act, but he got various schools and colleges and universities involved. Uh, the, finally, the U.S. Navy Department built one, an astronomical observatory. The U.S. Military Academy built one. He gave $1,000 to Harvard to build one. The school children of Philadelphia uh, pulled all their pennies, and obviously they got more money, but they built one in Philadelphia uh, called the Adams Lighthouse in the Sky. As far west as Cincinnati, 
where they built a, a, an astronomical observatory on a hill they renamed Mount Adams uh, for him. And these laboratory, these uh, uh, observatories uh, were networked so that they passed along information and drawings of everything they saw and connect, they could trace the planets for the first time. So it was a great advance uh, at that time. He sponsored these things at the age of uh, 73. So he spent the next six years on that project. And in 1846, he, at the age of 79, he had a stroke. But he refused to die. He just kept fighting and fighting and fighting and fought his way out of his deathbed. A year later, he was back in Congress with some help getting up the steps, obviously. Uh, and on February 23rd, in 1848, he tried standing to make a motion to end our involvement in the Mexican War. And he collapsed in the arms of a colleague and lay on a couch in the House of Representatives for two days and two nights and finally died in the House. Well, to the surprise of all the Southerners, Tens of thousands of Americans flocked to Washington to view his beer in the Capitol. Uh, it was the greatest outpouring since Washington or Franklin's death. The funeral procession uh, just filled the city, which was not as big as today, but it was still enormous. It was the largest funeral history in his funeral in history after uh, uh, Franklin's and Washington's Americans seemed to realize what he had contributed and how great a man he was after he died, more than they had realized when he was alive. Uh, the, he gained so much respect that a funeral train was organized with his beer on, on board, one of the cars draped in black, and a, a senator, one senator from every state, including the southern states, uh, accompanied uh, the beer up to Boston and the train had to stop at almost every station the crowds were waiting they, and they climbed on board to just touch his beer he was buried in the church in Quincy Massachusetts uh, beside his father and mother and his wife Louisa joined him four years afterwards uh, the amazing thing about both Adams is as they uh, were the first in a family of founding fathers who, whose, whose children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren uh, have been one of the, produced one of the greatest families in American history. No family has surpassed the Adamses in the numbers of jurists, scholars, uh, and accomplished uh, people. Uh, to this day, uh, they still serve our country. And to all of them, John Quincy Adams uh, left, and these were directed to all his heirs, these parting words. He said, you must have one great purpose of existence, to make your talents and your knowledge most beneficial to your country and most useful to mankind. And this was what he believed in service to his nation. He, and he never served himself. He was truly one of the greatest Americans, one of the greatest uh, 
figures in American history and a, a great patriot. Thank you very much. Then why is he so not well known? Why, I, I, and his father, too. I've always wondered why there isn't an Adams Memorial. Well, I'll tell you a little anecdote that will explain it. And it's the fault of our educators in the public schools, the private schools, the colleges. A few years ago, uh, David McCullough uh, was sponsored a, a, a test, a history test, for seniors, just seniors, in the top 100 colleges and universities listed in U.S. News and World Report. Yeah. So this includes Yale, Harvard, Princeton. One of the questions was, who was the commanding general at Yorktown? Two-thirds of the respondents said General Grant. <laughs> and as Dave McCullough says, if you don't know Yorktown, you don't know American history. American children at the finest schools are growing up without a knowledge of American history. And this is why we keep repeating our people in, in, in government, keep repeating the same errors over and over and over again. How many times does a Western nation have to go into Afghanistan before they will learn that you can't conquer Afghanistan? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just uh, uh, unbelievable. Yes, sir. Uh, but it seems like uh, what she was saying there, all the things you said about him, that you could overlook all of that. I mean, uh, uh, you can't expect people, uh, you know, at this time to know that, but, but people, you know, to just overlook this guy, you know, and, and, and not give him great recognition accomplishment seems like um, some sort of conspiracy or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've often thought that it's the father was just not a very popular guy, and, and the Alien and Sedition Act and all that kind of had a, you know, I don't know, did that, that was the dad, though, not No, it, it really is the failure of schools to teach history. Uh, they, they teach a mush called social studies, which teaches nothing about nothing, uh, instead of American history. You know, this whole debate about how, how, do, oh, how do we educate our children? You, everybody knows how to educate children. Uh, you, you give them a spank and you tell them, sit down, you're going to learn this. You don't have a choice. You don't give children a choice of what they learn and what they don't learn, if you want them educated. I noticed you brought a portrait with you. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, this one. Yes, this, uh, it, again, his interest in science. Uh, when the daguerreotypes were invented, uh, he sought out uh, one of the first people to do that, and this is the first uh, photograph of a president, an American president. Until then, and it's, there's a copy in my book, uh, until then, uh, all presidents had their portraits painted. But this is a photograph, a daguerreotype. He had several done. Uh, one in New York and one in New Haven. I've forgotten his name. He's in here. I think his name was, was Hayes or somebody like that. He was actually the third person to use the process. The first one had studied with Daguerre in, in, uh, in France and came over here, opened a shop in New York, and John Quincy Adams went down to be photographed. And then he died, and the second one. Yes, sir. A question that's related to comments earlier and something you said about Afghanistan. 
I've always wondered when you have Supreme Court justices saying they're originalists or textualists or whatever the different brands that they know what was the founders intended. No, I mean, I thought all U.S. was a miracle of compromise and exigencies, but when you, as you recited that, reading Cicero and how could, how can someone today assume they could know what's in the mind of the, of the founders? Well, A, they have to study the founders intensely. Remember, one of the reasons uh, we can be so accurate about John Quincy Adams, his father, when, when the boy was 10, made him keep a diary. He kept a diary until just a few weeks before he died. 14,000 pages. If you want to know about that, but you've got to read those 14,000 pages. And these people who go into politics today are just too lazy to study uh, the, the history of our nation. And they really just uh, uh, represent uh, the, the, the people of their section or special interests that pay for their election. They haven't studied, none of them go into Congress, or few of them go into Congress or into politics today the way uh, the Founding Fathers did. It was their duty to serve this nation and preserve uh, the liberties that we had won. I'm sorry? What year did he die? 1848. I think in the book it says 1748. There are, there, there are a couple of pages where there's a mis, there are misprints, and what should be 18-something is, is seven, uh, 17 something is 18. How come neither he nor his dad got a second term? I'm sorry? How come neither he nor his dad got a second term? Uh, well, his father's a different story. Uh, the uh, story of John Quincy Adams is Congress blocked every proposal he made in the four years he was there. So he got nothing through Congress. Uh, Jackson was a very popular figure, and Jackson was, uh, went around campaigning. John Quincy Adams refused to campaign and, uh, and lost the election. I'd be happy to sign uh, books for you, if you'd like.